All right, question. Don't answer out loud. What do you think are the most repeated commands in the Bible? What are the most repeated commands? You might be interested to know that it's not any of the prohibitions or warnings about our behavior. The most repeated commands in the Bible are centered around four concepts that are expressed in a variety of ways. Number one, praise the Lord. Number two, rejoice. Number three, give thanks. And number four, do not be afraid. And that tells us a lot. It tells us that God is most interested in you and I being happy and content in our relationship with Him and trusting in His promises. And it's, it's an amazing thing to think about that the God of the universe, you think about how big He is and how small we are, that that is His great desire, that we would abide with Him, that we would make our dwelling with this amazing person in a true, authentic relationship that then produces in us those things. It produces in us praise and joy and thankfulness and the absence of unhealthy fear. And when God repeats himself as he does in those four concepts, we should pay attention because for God, repetition means this is very, very important. So when we're praising the Lord, even this morning as we sang, when we're rejoicing in the life that he has given us, when we're giving thanks for everything that we have, and when we're replacing fear with trust, then we're living in the sweet spot that God has designed for our lives. And that's important to understand. Now, for this morning, I want to focus on just one of those four concepts because it, it is the center of the psalm that we're looking at this morning, and it's the command, do not be afraid, or simply put, fear not. What does that mean? What does it mean when God says, I don't want you to be afraid? Well, there's both a positive and a negative side to it. On the positive side, he wants us to meditate on the promises that he has given us in his word, promises reserved for those he calls his children, and he wants us to read those promises and accept them, that they are true, to absorb them and to know that God is faithful, and therefore we can lay aside all the unhealthy fears that drive us towards things that are sinful, towards things that aren't good for us, instead to trust his word, to trust what he's promised, to know that he's faithful, and that he will do all that he says in his word that he will do. That's what he wants. Now, on the negative side, there's a whole bunch of things about fear that he wants us to avoid. When we let unhealthy fear drive our thinking and our emotions and our choices, we are always going to find ourselves not trusting in God, but trusting in our own strength and our own resources. When unhealthy fear drives us, we will always find ourselves in life's decisions relying on ourselves, and we'll be quick to do it quick to get our needs met, our wants met, our desires met, and to do it by any means, even if it compromises our faith. Unhealthy fear will push us away from the Lord and cause us to idolize things like safety and comfort and the opinions of others. Let me say that again. Unhealthy fear will always push us away from trusting in the Lord, and we will find ourselves making idols out of safety and comfort and the opinions of others. So what we're going to see in uh, the psalm for today is David learning that exact lesson about what fear will do in your life when you're put under pressure, which so many of us feel we are these days. How are you going to respond to that? So this morning we're in Psalm 34, which in my opinion is one of the most beautifully structured of all the psalms in the entire book. But here's the thing. It has a very controversial background. Very controversial. We'll open to it in just a moment. But first, let me set the stage by walking you through the extensive context 
of what David is going to tell us. I'll start with this. The superscription on this psalm says this. So this is the historical background to the psalm. It says, A psalm of David when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away and he departed. Now, when you see a superscription like that at the beginning of a psalm, you go, hmm, I got to check this out. I have to know more about this. Well, it's in reference to a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. And to be honest, it's one of the most embarrassing incidents in all of David's life. And he had a number of them. This feigned madness before Abimelech took place when David was still a young man, probably in his mid to late 20s, and at the time that he's running away from King Saul, who was seeking to kill him. And it was during this time, and this is the key to the whole context of the psalm, during this time in David's life, what he was doing was turning to lying and deception to keep himself out of danger. Lying and deception to keep himself out of danger. That had become a pattern in his life. David was trusting in his own ingenuity, his, his own way of slipping out of trouble in order to spare his life. And in doing so, he brought others into his lies. One time his wife, one time his friend Jonathan, and asking them to cover for him in order to keep himself alive. So when we come to this story that you see on the screen in 1 Samuel 21, David is on the run, and he is trying his best to fly under the radar and stay away from Saul. And the text says that David came to a priestly town called Nob, which is about a, a mile north of Jerusalem. Now, at this point in history, Nob was where the tabernacle was being housed. And so David secretly came to the tabernacle, and he approached the high priest, and he asked for provisions. He is a, he is a lone fugitive trying to, again, trying to fly under the radar, and he asked for provisions. And true to form, David lies to the high priest about why he's there. He gives the high priest the impression that they, he is there on official kingdom business from King Saul. And so the high priest trusts David, and he gives him consecrated bread straight from the sanctuary in order to sustain him. And then David asked for one more thing. Do you remember what he asked for after he gets the bread? He asked for a weapon. Now, David knew exactly what was housed in the tabernacle there. It was a relic from the past that he himself was involved in, the sword that was taken from Goliath at that time was kept in the tabernacle. And so the high priest gave him the sword. So David takes the bread and he takes the sword and he races off west towards the Mediterranean Sea. There was only one problem. There was a servant of Saul in town that day in Nob and he saw David, an Edomite servant. And he reported to King Saul that David had come to the tabernacle and that the high priest had assisted him and given him these provisions. The text tells us later that King Saul flew into a rage, that the high priest would have assisted David like this. And in fact, later on, Saul orders that 85 priests in Nob be executed for treachery. So David's lying and deception cost lives that day. Meanwhile, David is now fleeing. And listen, he is fully driven by fear at this point. He's looking for a safe haven, someplace he can go to escape from Saul's hand. And 1 Samuel 21 tells us that he makes the very bizarre decision to leave the boundaries of Israel and to head into the land of Philistia. Now that is the, that is the you would think that's the last place you would want to go. Philistia, that is the, the mortal enemy of Israel. It is a shocking choice on David's part. And to make it worse, of the five great Philistine cities, David chooses to go to Gath, which is the hometown of who? of Goliath, and he's carrying Goliath's sword with him as he does. It's hard to believe, right? Now, 
you know I'm going to put a map up because I have to do that. So just so that you know what the, so you know the, the geography here, the blue dot is always Jerusalem. Okay, Gath is that red dot right there. The other yellow are the other four great cities of the Philistines. Okay, so in that area, you see how it, it, in the map, Israel and the Philistines bump up against each other, and that area in the middle is called the Shvela, and that's where all the battles are fought between the Israelites and the Philistines, and Gath is right at the forefront of that, those battle lines. So that's where David goes to, to Gath. Now, it's hard to imagine, but he decides, I'm going to go to Gath, and I'm going to try to remain anonymous. I mean, you picture him, right? Like it's Star Wars, like he puts his hood up, right? And like a Jedi, he's walking around like, I hope nobody notices me. That does not last long. He is eventually identified. And it's reported to the king of Gath that David, their mortal enemy who has slain Goliath and all these other Philistine soldiers, that David is in the city. The king of Gath is a man named Achish. Now, Achish is the same name that you had seen on that screen. Although it said Abimelech, it's the same guy. Abimelech was what we call a dynastic name, just like Pharaoh. Every king in Egypt was called Pharaoh, right? Or every, every uh, emperor in Rome was called a Caesar. Abimelech was a dynastic name. So his personal name was Achish, and so he would have been also known as Abimelech to the Israelites. But as you look at that superscription to Psalm 34, it is Achish, the king of Gath, who is going to drive David away. So let me explain how this story plays out. David apparently was grabbed by the soldiers. He was put under house arrest. And at that moment, you can imagine, David's thinking, what have I done? I mean, I've jumped out of the frying pan, but straight into the fire. I've gotten away from Saul, who surely would have killed me, but I may be in worse trouble now. It'd probably be better, best for him if they just execute him quickly. But in the ancient world, oftentimes when a king captured an opposing king, he would keep him as a captive and just torture him slowly over the rest of his life. And so David is dealing with that possibility. So David is in a panic. He's driven by fear once again, and he comes up with another desperate plan to deceive and to lie. What does he do? He pretends to act like a lunatic, right, in front of his captors. He just, he goes bonkers, and the text says that he scribbled on the doors of the gate, he drooled all over his beard, he made it appear as if he was a madman. And the basic idea was this, if I'm crazy, Akish will not think I'm a threat to him or that he'll get no pleasure out of torturing me because I'm out of his mind, out of my mind. That, that apparently was his strategy. And Akish fell for it. He fell for the ruse. In fact, he sarcastically asked his men, after seeing David, he says this, do I lack madmen that you have brought this one into my presence? In other words, do I not have enough crazy people in this city that you brought me another one? And so the Philistines kick David out of Gath. Now, is that not a miracle? That's a miracle. As the superscription says, when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away. And so by this deception, David manages to escape. But you have to know this. The king of Israel, the future king of Israel, is here acting like a madman. He would have disgraced the God of Israel in front of pagans. He disgraced Yahweh by acting in this way. So it's a troubling story. And so you're like, oh, so that's the background of this psalm? I mean, it raises so many questions. Why on earth did he go to Gath in the first place? How could a man as godly as David show such poor judgment? Second, are we supposed to praise God that David escaped in that way? Is that what we're supposed to do? Is this the, 
Deception is supposed to be a model for us as believers about how we can slip out of trouble. And what's really hard is that we get, as we get to Psalm 34 in just a moment, David is going to talk about things like righteousness and integrity. He's literally going to say that we should keep our lips from deceit. So how do we take that seriously? Knowing that this is literally the superscription and the background of this psalm. I'm going to give you the answer, just so you're not wondering this whole time. Because it's more complex than just this one psalm. The solution to this apparent problem is not found in 1 Samuel. It's not found in Psalm 34. It's actually found in a whole different psalm, which is Psalm 56. Psalm 56, here's the superscription for that. For the choir director of Miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So Psalm 56 talks about the same period of time when David was under arrest and his life was hanging in the balance. And here it is. Here's the key. The focus of Psalm 56 is David wrestling with his fears. His fears. All the fears that had driven him for years to consistently lie and deceive others to get out of trouble. And when you read Psalm 56, you see that David came to understand what his root problem was. And so many of us struggle with this. His root problem, our root problem. We fear men more than we fear God. That's what was going on. He feared what man could do to him more than what he feared Yahweh could do to him. And we all struggle with this. So he wasn't trusting in God's provision, wasn't trusting in God's protection or God's promises to rescue him. Remember, he's the anointed king. If he can't trust Yahweh, who can? Instead, he was trusting in what? His own cleverness. See, we we struggle with this as well. Like, I can get myself out of this. Our own cleverness, our own ability to get out of trouble, and to use any means to do so, as long as we slip out of that trouble, even if it compromises our faith, we think we're doing pretty well. So in Psalm 56, you hear David very humble, confessing his sin, confessing that he had not trusted in God. And in Psalm 56, he comes to this conclusion. He says, when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, Lord, in God, in whose word I praise. In God, I have put my trust. I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? So he comes to the right conclusion in Psalm 56. Now, here's the historical order. David writes 56 first, confesses his sin, renews his trust in God, and then later he writes Psalm 34, which we're about to read. And it's in Psalm 34 where he praises God for this process that he went through in confessing sin and being delivered by the Lord. And now in Psalm 34, what he's going to say is, hey, listen, everybody else, I've learned this lesson the hard way. Let me show you how to do this correctly. That's the background of Psalm 34. Everybody open to it? That was a long introduction, wasn't it? Psalm 34, open up. I hope that made some sense um, and gets you to where you need to get to. Otherwise, it can be hard to understand what David's talking about here. So where's he going to start? Having gone through this process of learning his lesson, confessing his sin, renewing his trust in God, where's he going to start? Where he should start with is a vow of praise. All right, so I'm going to put these, again, I don't expect your eyes to be that good. This is not an eye test. Uh, But I want you to see how how this psalm is structured piece by piece as we go through it. And the first section is verses one to three. This is David's vow of praise. Look at it. Verse one. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
or on my lips. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. The humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord. Some translations say, proclaim the Lord's greatness with me and let us exalt his name together. Now, uh, if you're one of those folks who likes to mark up your Bible and you have a pen, underline all of the action words you see in these three verses. Are you ready? Bless, praise, boast, rejoice, magnify, and exalt. What a list of words. Bless, praise, boast, rejoice, magnify, and exalt. What a list that is. And it tells us a number of things about how far God had brought David at this point to lay aside his fears and to trust in him alone. You see a whole number of things in these three verses. Number one, look how David decides that he will praise the Lord. He says, I will bless the Lord. It's a decision of his will. I will do this. I've determined to bless God, to praise him, to boast in him, and to magnify and exalt him. That's where it starts, to make a, a, a willful choice to say, I will do this regardless of what life throws at me. I will praise the Lord. Secondly, he says, it's constant. He says, at all times I will do this. That, does, that means not just once a week on Sundays, or Saturdays in his case, right? We don't, we don't just store it all up and go, for six days I haven't really worshipped the Lord, but Sunday's coming. At all times, at every opportunity, every possible moment, and I'm not just going to praise God when I feel like it or when it's easy. I'm going to praise the Lord even if I don't feel like it because he's worthy. Even when I'm in a crisis, when I sense that fear is rising in my heart and I am in the grip of a temptation to do my own thing, especially then, this is key, especially then I will praise the Lord. That's so important. Third, David says it's out loud. It's from my lips. He's not ashamed to say, I praise the Lord. Not just in his heart, but out loud as well. Fourth, look at David promises to boast in God. Now, generally, we look at the Bible and go, boasting is bad. But if we're boasting in the Lord, it's a wonderful thing. Now, David could have boasted in his own cleverness and said, hey, you know what? We do this all the time. You know what? That plan of, of mine to get out of Gath, that was pretty sharp, wasn't it? I mean, God blessed it, which is great, but you know what? I'm pretty clever. Oh, we do that a lot, don't we? And then we attach God's blessing to the backside of it. We're like, I, I figured that out, but thank you, Lord, for, for blessing my efforts. David boasts in the Lord. He knows better at this point, right? In fact, David at this point would be boasting in his weakness, as Paul says, right? Boasting in his weakness so that we can boast in the strength of God. Number five, David's worship is corporate. Notice how he says, let us. He's talking to his audience now. Let us exalt his name together in verse 3. The joy of congregational praise. That's what we've already done this morning. That's what we do each and every Sunday. There's just something special and encouraging about coming together and singing praises. It's meant to encourage us and to build us up. And then last, his worship is contagious. He says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. So having, having experienced this immeasurable amount of God's grace in his life where God... God, God, you know, forgave him for all he had done in Gath. David is now celebrating, and he wants to draw others into this. He's like, guys, let me, I have a testimony to share with you about what God has done in my life. I want you to come into this practice of praise with me, because God is worthy. So you have to see this. David is celebrating in these first three voices. He is overflowing with joy, and it just pours out of him. Has this happened to you? 
where you're at that moment where you're like, man, I was such a fool, but God has forgiven me. He's restored me. He's delivered me. And I just, I can't stop talking about it because God is so good. So David says, come with me, make a decision as I have to praise the Lord at all times. Together, let us magnify his name. This is a great model for us, guys. A great model. Question for you. Would you describe your life of praise as David describes it here? Is this how you praise the Lord in your life? And if not, is this something that you want to grow in? What are the steps you would need to take to make this your heart for worship? Hmm. So these three verses set the tone for the entire psalm. It's the praise of the Lord. That's where he starts. But then he asks the question, well, why is David so committed? And that's what comes up next. Look at the next few verses. Look at verse 4. Here's why David is praising the Lord with such commitment. Verse 4, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from what? All my fears. Next section, verses 4 through 8. David declares, I've been delivered from these fears that were driving my sin and drive our sin today. That's the key, right? I was struggling with all these fears in my life, and eventually I came to the end of myself, and I turned to the Lord, and I sought him in prayer, and guess what? God hadn't moved an inch. He had not abandoned me. What a lesson for us. Even when we fall into sin, when we turn it around, right, we begin to repent and we come back to God, we find he's always been there. He's not abandoned us. In fact, it says he answered my prayers. So you can picture David saying, and as I write this psalm, I am happy to report that he has delivered me now from all these ugly things that were driving my ugly choices. That's why I want to praise the Lord. Drop down to verse 6 now. He describes this further. He says, this poor man cried. And imagine, this is David speaking about himself. It tells us how broken he had become over his sin. The lying, the deception, his trust in his own self. This is the future king of Israel saying, you know what? I'm I'm no better than a poor man. I'm no better than a poor man. I, I was acting like a clown among the Philistines. And I dishonored my testimony and I dishonored the God of Israel. I am but a poor man. But then it goes on to verse six, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. So he graciously heard my cry. He answered me, and this is great. He saved me out of the mess that I put myself into. What a gracious God. I made the wrong choice. I was driven by the wrong things. And yet God extracted me from that situation. David's not taking credit for his clever plan. He's saying God was just purely gracious in rescuing me from that place. And you look at that. Why would the Philistines not hold on to the king of Israel? Why would they not hold on to David, this guy who had led armies against them? God had delivered him. So he delivered him physically and delivered him from his fears. And then in verse 7, David goes on to point out just how present God had been with him even after leaving Gath. He says, verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Wow. So in the next chapter, in in 1 Samuel 22, we're told that after David departed from Gath, that he traveled back east into a place called the Cave of Adullam. Map time. Map break. So that pink dot is where the Cave of Adullam is. So he traveled from Gath back towards the land of Israel and he finds this cave and what happens in this cave? 
word gets out amongst his family that he's, he's back in the land of Israel. And God is so gracious. 400 men come to David in this place. And they, they say, oh, we want to serve alongside you. So David no longer is a lone fugitive, fearing for his life. God provides him with 400 mighty men who now have some actual military strength. God was so gracious. And I think it's at that moment where David realizes, you know what? My ever-present protector has never left me. And even in this cave, he has surrounded me, but the angel of the Lord has been present to protect me. And you, you see him popping himself in the head and go, why would I not trust him? Why would I trust him myself? The very angel of the Lord encamps around his anointed. And this angel of the Lord is likely... We don't know for sure because it's not specific, but in other places in the, in the Bible, angel of the Lord is the second person of the Godhead in pre-incarnate form. That's protection. That is strength. And this angel of the Lord would be watching over his anointed king and protecting him and giving him these 400 mighty men to bless him. Amazing story. Now, verse 8 is the most famous verse in the entire psalm. David now considers all that God has done in saving him, all that God has done in protecting him. And he says, he said, and, and he's talking now again to his audience. So he's talking to us 3,000 years later. He says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. So again, David is overflowing with joy at what God has done for him. And this is, it just pours out of him. He can't stop. And notice how, again, he's exhorting his audience to get involved. He's like, guys, I want you to experience what I've experienced. If you would trust him, he will do the same for you. Taste and see. And that, the language there means experience this. Don't just, don't just think about it intellectually. Experience this. Find out how good and gracious God is. Don't just look from the outside and go, oh, that looks interesting the way God's protecting you. That's, that's interesting. Don't think that. Don't just dabble with this. Well, maybe I'll dip my toe into the pool of faith. He's like, no, experience this. Taste and see. Abide in this relationship, and you will see that knowing God is sweeter than honey. That's, we sing a song here at Oak Hill called Honey, and that, and that is that powerful, powerful lyric that we sing. It's sweeter than honey. Taste and see that knowing God is that sweet. So it raises more questions. What about you? Does this describe... Does this story about David, does this describe how you deal with your sin? Do you seek the Lord's face? Do you come to him as a poor man with nothing to offer and just asking for his forgiveness, confessing sin and asking? Have you come to him broken? Have you, is, there, is there a testimony in your life where you have, you've been broken over your sin, you've come to him, and you have experienced this by taste? how God has forgiven you and restored you, and you're like, man, it is so sweet to be in fellowship with God. I hope so. I hope so. And that takes us into the next section. David now is going to come back to the issue of fear, but this time it's the right fear, the right kind of fear. Look at verse 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Knock it off of that unhealthy fear that drives you into sin. Fear the Lord, you holy ones. For to those who fear him, there is no want. There is nothing lacking. So what I love about this in the psalm is this brings us to a very healthy balance in these statements. 
And I think this is really important for our modern generation because we love all the feels in our worship, right? We, we love all of those things. So yes, experience God. Be in a relationship with Him. Abide in Him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. But, David says, never lose the foundational statement about how you should relate to God. You fear Him. Find the balance between these things, right? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, it's to remember who you are in relation to Him. To know that you are not His peer, right? You are not His equal. You're not, you're not even in the same ballpark. Yes, you're known by Him. Yes, you're loved and you're valued by Him. Yes, He desires to come near to us. But listen, do not turn that into irreverence as if we can treat Him as a buddy. Because again, the modern day church has tended to err on that side, to treat Him as our buddy, to treat Him casually. So enjoy God, but still tremble at His greatness. Right? Can we find that balance? Bow before Him. Show Him the honor He deserves. Stand in awe of Him always. And then look at the promise that David declares in verse 9. If your heart is driven by that balance, that you're fearing the Lord, he says you'll lack no essential thing. doesn't mean he's going to give you, you know, the Mercedes you want, the house you want. You will lack nothing in the essentials. He will provide for you. Trust him. Now drop down to verse 11, and you see a change in style. David says, come you children. And literally the word means sons in the Hebrew. He's talking to the young men of Israel. He says, listen to me, I will teach you the fear of the Lord. So again, David's, David's excited about this. He's like, I've been through this experience. I was, I was in a bad spot. I learned my lesson. Now you young men, maybe just a little bit younger than David, he says, let me share with you my story. Let me share with you some wisdom so that you don't go through the same foolishness and sin that I did. So he says, grab a seat. Let me share this with you. Let me teach you how to fear the Lord and to experience his blessing. Verse 13, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart or turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So this is an important part right here in verse 13 because sometimes we tend to think about, well, you say, I fear the Lord, but it's all up here. We've decided that fearing the Lord is a mindset, and it is in part, but fearing the Lord is to be lived out in many, many ways. We think, okay, well, I know I need to honor and respect God, but it's more than that. It's not just intellectual assent. It's not just learned in church or the classroom. We live this out. And David, look, David points to a couple ways here in these verses. He says, first, start here. And James talks about this too, right? Control your tongue. You want to fear the Lord? Start with the words that you use. Man, does our generation need to hear this. Control the tongue, the power of words, to either build up or to tear down when we speak to other people. Jesus, Jesus told us, remember, the mouth speaks that which fills the heart, right? So when we speak words that are designed to wound, when we speak words that denigrate others, we shouldn't be surprised by that. They're just words that came out of our mouth. We shouldn't be surprised because we know that that sinful inclination is already in our hearts. That's where it needs to be dealt with, right? So even when David says, control your tongue, he's actually pointing to the heart and saying, why do you say the things that you say? Why do you lie? Why do you speak deceit? Because it's already in the heart. 
And so it needs to be dealt with there. You cannot fear God while at the same time speaking evil things. Can't do it. Nor can you speak deceitful things, David says. And again, this is the irony, right? He personally learned this in Gath. And even before that, that you cannot fear the Lord and be a deceitful person. You cannot say, I fear God while you're out there, you know, shading, we call it shading the truth. Can't be out there, you know, deceiving people and say, I fear the Lord. And then he says, you really want to fear God? He says, pursue peace. Seek peace and pursue it. That's in your relationships, right? Don't be the person who's always at the center of the drama. Seek peace. Don't be the one who's instigating conflict at every turn. Pursue peace. All these things are really practical instructions from our very young instructor, young David. By the way, the Apostle Peter quotes this section in his first epistle. So scholars have looked at this and said, Peter must have meditated on Psalm 34 as much as any other psalm in his life because he talks, there's so many parallel themes between this psalm and what Peter writes about. In fact, you want to hear what, what, what practical things Peter attaches to this section of Psalm 34, he says, let me see if I have it. Do I have it? I don't have it. Never mind. Don't jump ahead. Here's what he says. Peter lists these things as a practical outgrowth of fearing the Lord. He says, and and again, he's talking primarily about within the church. Be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another. Be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving a blessing. That's part of what Peter says it means to fear the Lord. It's not just a mental ascent, it's lived out. So, question for us this morning. Does this describe, these things, do they describe how you live out the fear of the Lord in your relationships, in how you speak to one another? Is, does this describe how you operate in the church, in your relationships? Or have you just intellectualized that concept and not actually applied it in your life? Oh, I fear the Lord. Okay, show us. Show that in your life. And again, there's grace for that, but it's, look, if that's something you've struggled with, we need to go to the Lord and say, okay, God, you know what? I learned something at church today. I'm failing at it. Help me. Help me to grow in this area, to fear the Lord, not just mentally, if, not just intellectually, but to apply it in my life. Okay, one last section, and then we'll be done. Verses 15 to 19, David reminds us, that God's people will experience affliction, just as he had. We talked about it last week, how many afflictions David had to go through. Verse 19, drop down to 19. Listen to this. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. Many. But the Lord delivers him out of them all. And so we know this truth. God's people don't get a pass from suffering in the midst of this fallen world. Remember, Jesus said it too. He said, in this life, you will have tribulation. Paul told the Thessalonians in the first century, he says, we kept telling you in advance, we are destined to suffer affliction. So why are we surprised? Peter meditated on this post, on, on the most on this psalm. He says, he says that the reality of suffering in this world is for believers. In fact, he says, don't be surprised by it. He says this, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose, to endure suffering. He says, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeals which come upon you as though some strange thing were happening. Many are the afflictions of the righteous. 
So prepare your hearts in advance. And here's the thing, when things get really hard and you're in the midst of the trial, that's in particular when you need to taste and see that God is still good. And you need to praise him. And he will, in his timing, deliver the righteous. And, you know, people say, you know, look, if we're going to go through all these afflictions, well, why be righteous? Because the promise is that God will deliver us out of all of them. The, the rub there is we want it done now. But part of the affliction is waiting in the midst of the affliction. But God promises that he will deliver you in his time. And so we come back to the same question that David originally struggled with. Do I really trust? Do I really trust his promises or am I going to have to go out on my own and fix my own problems? This is the balance, right? Absorb the truth also in verse 18, the previous verse. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. What, is, what does that mean? David's speaking of people who have been humbled before the Lord just as he had been humbled. On the Mount of Beatitudes, remember Jesus called them the poor in spirit and said that they're blessed for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are folks who are often in the middle of affliction. They are struggling under the weight of trials. And sometimes it's because of their own sin. And sometimes it's just a part of being in this fallen world. But they've come to the end of themselves. That is such an important concept. They're in affliction, but they've come to the end of their own resources. Where will they turn? There's only one place, right? They understand that they have nothing of value in themselves to offer God, no strength of their own to trust in. So they will trust in God's grace alone and they will take shelter under his wings. That's what it means to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit. I have nothing but you, Lord. To get to that point, again, as Americans who have so much, we struggle to get to the end of ourselves, don't we? But for these folks, it's all they have. And this is the lesson that David had learned. This is the lesson that David wants to pass along to the congregation. And the end of all of that is the very last verse, verse 22, where he says, The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David ultimately looks to the judgment seat and says, You know what? Even if the affliction lasts for a long time on this earth, know that I will ultimately deliver you. You you are the, the, those of you who fear the Lord, my eyes are upon the righteous. There is no condemnation for you. That's how he ends this psalm. I will redeem the soul of my servants, he says, and they will never be condemned. That, I mean, that is the ultimate statement of the victory we have. Because look, I'm not going to stand up here and tell you we're not going to suffer or that we haven't seen real strong believers in the Lord who have suffered greatly in this life. But the ultimate picture is God will deliver every single one of his servants and redeem their souls. And they will not be condemned and they will live for eternity with the Lord. That is the ultimate promise. So many are the afflictions of the righteous, but far greater is the refuge that God provides. Amen? So let's put a bow on this. What can we say about David? Um, as, I, as I've been working through the Psalms, there's so many parallels, at least in my puny little brain, that compares with Peter in our study of John. Because they're both such mixed, it's a mixed bag, isn't it? There's times when we're, we so admire these men and other times where we go, I don't get it. Such a mixed bag. His character, his choices. 
this story in Psalm 34, it's hard for me to process. But at the end of the day, the beauty of this is this is a psalm written by a sinner to other sinners. And we just have to acknowledge that David was a man who had feet of clay, a very imperfect vessel who was chosen by God for his purposes. Just like Peter, right? Peter was a man that just feet of clay. And I thank God for both of them. I thank God that the Bible doesn't shy away from the, the, the hard reality of man's heart. Even, even God's, I, I hesitate to say favorite servants, but some of God's greatest servants, they're a mess. Raise your hand if you're glad that that's the case. Because if God hadn't written us a word where every one of the biblical heroes was so perfect, we'd say, I'll never measure up. I can't do this. But instead, he gives us David, and he gives us Peter. And we can identify with these heroes and their struggles. And we can use them as models in our lives. See, in spite of his many failures, in spite of his constant flagrant sins, what does David do? Over and over again, he keeps coming back to the Lord. Right? Because how many times have we said it here in this church? When you fall into sin, you have two choices. To move towards God in confession and repentance or to keep stiff-arming him and to get further and further away. Well, David, he goes through these times in his life where he's just, he's out there on his own, but he always comes back to God. And he always comes back and he repents. And he seeks God as his only refuge. And he keeps learning these lessons. And then he writes them down for us. And I'm glad for that. This is what we're supposed to be doing in our lives. And so the lesson for us this morning is don't let unhealthy fear drive your thinking. Don't let unhealthy fear drive your choices. Fear God above all else and trust his promises that he will deliver you in his timing. Yes, many are the afflictions that we will have to face in our lifetimes. And I know how tempting it is to say, well, I will, I will figure my own way out of this. I will rely on myself. I will use a little bit of deception, a little bit of lying to get out of this. But learn from David. Trust in what God has promised you. Stay brokenhearted before him. Give him your vow of praise. In all circumstances, give him your vow of praise. Bless him at all times. Let praise be on your lips continually. Boast in the goodness of God. Magnify and exalt his name. Let that be your decision of your will, regardless of what this life throws at you. And then let that posture in your life be contagious to others in this congregation as we come together and say, you know what? We're going to go through this life together. It's hard. But we're going to hold each other up. We're going to link arms and we're going to keep praising the Lord until the day he returns or calls us home. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. I'm just going to pray our way through the psalm, and I'm going to pray it personally as we've done each and every week. But listen, if this is the, if this is the, the prayer of your heart, then I want you to agree with this. So stay focused. Let's ask the Lord to bless us. Father, it is my desire to praise you and to boast in you and to rejoice in your goodness and to exalt your name at all times. Lord, I need help with that because I fall so short. Lord, help me to continually come back to you when I sin, to seek your face and to trust that you will deliver me from my fears. God, show me how sweet the taste of your forgiveness is. Show me how sweet it is to, to know that you have restored our fellowship after confession of sin. 
Cause me to grow in my fear of you over all other things. Do not let me be driven by the fear of man or the fear of trials that might come my way. Help me to trust in you alone. Lord, keep my tongue from evil. Keep my lips from speaking deceit. Help me to be truthful. Help me to build up and encourage in the words that I use. And may I remain brokenhearted before you. Lord, will you cause me to be continually dependent upon your grace in my life? God, thank you for the example of David. Even though it's sometimes hard to understand what he was thinking, Lord, we have a great example here that you've given us. May we learn his lessons this morning for our good, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen.